Well, hello and welcome to session five of the recovery course. And tonight's talk is entitled New Life or Old Life? Time to Choose. And we're looking at step three. And step three of the 12-step program says this. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. Uh, with that, I've put a verse from the Old Testament. It's from the Psalms. It's very short, very to the point. David wrote this. Is anyone crying for help? God is listening, ready to rescue you. We've spent the last four weeks facing up to our denial in step one, admitting that we are powerless to control our addiction and our compulsive behaviours. Uh, we've been, in fact, we can't do that by our own willpower alone, and as a result, our life has become unmanageable and for many of us has been running increasingly out of control. Then when we looked at step two, we came to see that while we are not maybe certifiably insane, many of our actions and decisions have not been those of someone we would consider a sane person. And that it's only with the power of God, which for some of us here is primarily found through a relationship with Jesus, that we have any real hope of getting out of this mess that we've created. Last week in our coursework, which we call Pause for Thought, we were encouraged to make a list of the areas in our life that we might be prepared at some point to let God help with. And then later on in that coursework, we went on to make a specific list of things that we are now ready to release from our control and turn over to his influence. But how do we actually do that? Step three says, we made a decision to turn our wills and our lives over to the care of God. The late Princess Diana once said, I don't go by the rule book. I lead from the heart, not the head. And she later advised, only do what your heart tells you. Now, I know she meant well, but that is a terrible piece of advice, especially if we're recovering from an addiction that is trying to kill us. One of the reasons that we are here today struggling with our issues is because for most of our lives, we have been acting on our intuition rather than going by the book. And the consequences, quite frankly, for many of us have been disastrous. So, maybe it's time to give the book a chance. Step three requires us to make a decision. But if you're anything like me, doing things by the book is not very appealing. Because as addicts, we tend to be maverick, non-conformist by nature. However, I'd like you to consider three things about making a decision. <clears throat> First of all, it is your decision. Nobody makes it for you. You decide whether to turn your will 
and life over to the care of God or not. It's totally up to you. It doesn't affect anyone else here in any shape or form, whether you do or not. It's your decision. Secondly, we are turning our problem over to the care of God. We're not turning our back on the problem. Turning our back on something implies that we are no longer responsible, um, no longer responsible for the problem, and we can simply forget about it. Turning something over to a higher power infers that we are still responsible for seeking a solution to our problems, while at the same time being open to God's guidance and power. And that guidance and power may come through something that we read, it might be a line from a film or a play, it could be a, a line in a newspaper, a book, it might be a conversation that we overhear on the bus or on a train. It can come in any way. It might be something that's said to us here by one of our colleagues in our group or on one of the other 12-step anonymous fellowships like AA or NA, where there is a huge collective wisdom. We are coming to understand that we are powerless over our addiction, and that means that the answer to our problem won't necessarily be a solution that we come up with a solution that we hope for or a solution that comes to fruition that, at a time that is convenient to us. We play our part, which is turning our will and lives over to the care of God, and then we leave the outcome to him. And over time, we begin to see that the solution that God comes up with is invariably better than anything we could come up with. There's a verse in the Old Testament in a book called Proverbs which says this, Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Don't try and figure out everything on your own. Listen for God's voice in everything you do, everywhere you go. He's the one who will keep you on track. And then thirdly, please note, we are making the decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. We're not abandoning our independence. We are simply committing our independence to a loving power who is far greater than us and who will show us the right path if we want him to. Given the cavalier way in which we have exercised our independence in the past, I think for many of us that seems an eminently wise route to take for a change. As God has said, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now I need that. I need a hope and a future, and he's promised he will give that to me if I ask him to. All this talk of making a decision will probably pop two words into our heads that ring very loud alarm bells, and these are trust and commitment. 
Trust is a word that provokes a wide range of opinions. <coughs> Excuse me. The ancient Greek orator, Demosthenes, said, there is one safeguard known generally to the wise, which is an advantage and security to all. What is it, he asks? Distrust. So for Demosthenes, his philosophy was, if you're sensible, don't trust anyone. Conversely, the novelist E.M. Forster wrote, one must be fond of people and trust them if one is not to make a mess of life. Two very opposite opinions, and both can't be right. Now, we may be someone who claims to distrust most people. In fact, I would classify myself as being someone who, by nature, does not trust anyone. But actually, that's not ultimately true. Every day, we put our trust and our faith in others. When we send a letter or an email, we don't doubt that it will get through. We have trust in the postal system or in the World Wide Web. When a car stops for us on a pedestrian crossing, we trust that the driver won't suddenly decide to mow us down once we're halfway across. When we go to the doctor, we trust him or her for sound advice and a prescription that will cure our ailment. If we have an operation, we trust the surgeon not to chop the wrong leg off. If we have an accountant, we put our trust in them to fill in our tax return properly. When we go to the supermarket, we trust the checkout assistant will give us the correct change. If we eat out in a restaurant or when we go to another meeting, we trust that the chef won't poison us. Our days are actually full of trusting and putting our faith in others. Why then is it so hard for us to trust our will and lives to the care of God, who is actually far more loving and trustworthy than all of these examples I've just mentioned? To trust someone is to put our faith in them. And what is faith? It's simply taking someone at their word. So in other words, if God promises something in the Bible, he will do it. I think the trouble for many of us is that we are greatly influenced by our relationship with our own parents. If we have parents who have loved us unconditionally, then it's not that difficult, maybe, to relate to God in the same way. But if our parents were the root of abuse, fear, desertion, controlling, and so on, our view of God may also be that of someone who is not to be trusted, someone who, if we put our faith in him, will ultimately let us down. Again, in last week's uh, coursework called Pause for Thought, we spent some time exploring the following two questions. What do you think God is like? And the second question was, in what ways are your feelings for God similar to the feelings you have about your own earthly parents? In her book, K. 
counselling adult children of alcoholics, Sandra D. Wilson identifies five of the most common distortions of God that we as addicts come up with. <clears throat> and in fact, we often don't just have one of these, there'll be a, a number of these five that might apply to us and our experience of our own earthly parents. The first one is this, the cruel and capricious God. This image of God is formed in families where the environment combines extreme emotional neglect with harsh and cruel treatment. The fruit in our adult life is the painful expectation of being punished by God if we do not meet his standards. And this whole concept of the fatherhood of God does that, doesn't sound comforting, but rather is associated with the cruel and abusive treatment that was received as a child in the family. We may be sure that closeness to God will mean pain and just the thought of turning our will and life over to that God is putting us in a vulnerable and frightening position. Secondly, so that's the cruel and capricious God. Number two is the demanding, unforgiving God. And here, one may earn his approval, but only through hard work and doing good deeds. And this view of God comes through being subjected to the perfectionist demands of a parent or being a neglected child. And in both cases, we strive to earn God's love. We may end up a very good religious person, but doing things with the wrong motivation. Subconsciously, we are performing for a demanding God for whom we cannot do enough. Thirdly, the selective and unfair God. This unfair God loves everyone else, loves everyone in this room, but not you. Maybe one of your parents treated you as different and not as good as one of your siblings, maybe, and you end up thinking of yourself as a second-class citizen, even within a church environment. And we tend to become acutely aware of how others are blessed, but we are not. And we may agree with the Bible verse that says that all have fallen, fallen short of God's glory and that all have received the same measure of grace, but in our heart we still believe that God discriminates by treating his other children better. Fourthly, the distant and unavailable God. This God is not cruel, he's not demanding, he's not unforgiving and he's not selective, he's just unavailable. And this often results from a situation where one of our parents was not around, maybe due to ill health or abandonment, divorce. And the resulting belief may be that God loves his children, but he doesn't actually interact with them in any kind of personal way. And then fifthly, there is the kind but confused God. And in this distorted view of God, he's loving but is ineffective in solving the problems of the world or an individual. Our earthly parent was ineffective in dealing with family chaos, and this observation is transferred onto God. We need to face the reality 
that our parents were not perfect and failed us in many ways, but it is illogical to come to the conclusion that God also behaves in the same way. In the Psalms in the Old Testament, King David writes this, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. God is not like our parents. Thank God. St. Paul, in the New Testament, he writes about how our relationship with God is one of a parent with a much-loved son or daughter. Uh, he writes in one of his letters to the Romans, he says, this resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a child like, what's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children. And in his letter to the Christians in Galatia, Paul again reaffirms the truth about this intimate parent-child relationship that God has with us. He writes this, You can tell for sure that you are now fully adopted as his own children because God sent the spirit of his son into our lives, crying out, Papa, Father, and he goes on, doesn't that privilege of intimate conversation with God make it plain that you are not a slave, but a child? And if you are a child, you're also an heir with complete access to the inheritance. We may, however, be very suspicious and distrustful of this whole idea of a loving God who cares for us. When I was a, a child, a dog bit me. But that does not mean that all dogs bite. The incident may have made me wary of dogs that I'm not familiar with, but if I see one coming up to me, wagging its tail, giving other friendly visual signals, I can probably fairly safely assume that it intends me no harm. Unfortunately, the only way I will know whether the dog bites is to reach out and touch it. And it's the same thing with God. The only way we will know if he is who he says he is, is to reach out to him. Maybe we are hesitating because we don't understand everything. We will never understand everything. In fact, relying on our own understanding is, is what has got us into this current mess. Again, I mean, St. Paul had an amazing relationship with God. And yet he writes in another of his letters to the Corinthians, he says this, we don't yet see things clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us towards that consummation. 
He says this, trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. So in other words, like St. Paul, we don't need a perfect understanding of God in order to ask him into our lives. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Deuteronomy, and in it, Moses wrote this. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and all your soul. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you. For many of us, I think one of our greatest fears is that of being abandoned and rejected. One of our parents may have abandoned us as children, either physically or emotionally, and we carry that fear into our relationship with God. To move forward, we need to be confident that God will not abandon us too. All of us need to know at a very deep level that God is not disgusted with us and that he will not reject us. We need to know that God is merciful and forgiving regardless of what we have done. Unless we believe this, we will not be able to turn our lives and wills over to him. But as we give what we can, doesn't matter how small, our trust will grow and we will find that we are able to begin giving and trusting more. So, how do we do that? First of all, old-fashioned word I know, but we need to repent. Repentance conjures up all kinds of images, I know, but actually it's a remarkably simple two-fold action. All repentance means is to make a 180-degree turn. I am heading in that direction. At some point I realise, hmm, this is not a good idea, so I repent and I turn around and go in the other direction. That's all repentance means, going in a different direction. And so first of all, we turn away, again, another old-fashioned word, from our sins. What our sins are are basically the negative things that damage us and damage those around us, the things that create a barrier between us and God. In the Old Testament, in a book called Ezekiel, God encourages us with these words. He says, so turn around. Turn your backs on your rebellious living so that sin won't drag you down. Clean house. No more rebellions, please. Get a new heart. Get a new spirit. Why would you choose to die? I take no pleasure in anyone's death. Make a clean break. Live. Second, so the first thing is we repent. Second, we submit ourselves to God's view of life rather than our own. True repentance affects our entire being and completely changes the way we look at life. Again, in his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul writes this. He says, take your everyday ordinary life, 
You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you. Quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. You see, we don't repent because we fear that God will punish us. We're repenting because he's facing us with open, loving arms. And when we give him our old life, We are given a new one in return. Again, this is an extraordinary line in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians, that Paul writes. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This turning over of our life into the care of God is a -a once-in-a-lifetime decision. However, the other part of step three, turning our will over to him, is something we need to do daily. And this is something that we will be looking at over the coming weeks when we go on to some of the other steps. I read something uh, recently. It was written by um, a former prostitute called Mandy. She spent 20 years of her life in and out of prison. She had been on heroin and crack. And she wrote this. All I know is, when you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, there's a door that's open. And that line actually echoes some words of Jesus, who says this, Are you tired? Worn out? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest, Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Now, of course, some of us here might be more in tune with the philosopher Bertrand Russell. Russell wrote this. He said, In the visible world, the Milky Way is a tiny fragment. Within this fragment, the solar system is an infinitesimal speck. And within the speck, our planet is a microscopic dot. On this dot, he says, tiny lumps of carbon and water crawl about That's you and me, by the way. We are those tiny lumps of carbon and water. And we crawl about for a few years until they are dissolved again into the elements of which they are compounded. This belief later led Russell to pen, I think, some of the most chilling words ever written. He wrote this. 
We stand on the shore of an ocean, crying to the night an emptiness. Sometimes a voice answers out of the darkness, but it's a voice of one drowning, and in a moment the silence returns. He goes on. The world seems to me quite dreadful. The unhappiness of most people is very great. There's no problem in having a, a belief like Russell's. But what it does mean is that we end up possibly with a life that has no hope in it. Dr. Graham Tomlin who's the Dean of St. Melitus Theological College in London, he's written about this question of faith. He says, Nowhere does the Bible show any interest in the question, is there a God? The writers do not try to prove it, demonstrate it, or argue for it. They simply assume it. And he goes on, this is the only way God can be found. Faith begins when I realize that I am not what I might be. In fact, to be blunt, I am self-centered, thoughtless, loveless, and need to change. And I need to find a way to do that. Goes on, the God of the Bible is not interested in whether we happen to entertain the opinion that he exists or not. He is interested in changing us, and only those prepared for that challenge will ever find him. I want to close with a quote from the Oscar-winning film, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And in the film, Benjamin, played by Brad Pitt, says this, for what it's worth, it's never too late to be whoever you want to be. There's no time limit. Stop whenever you want. You can change or stay the same. There are no rules to this thing. We can make the best or the worst of it. I hope you make the best of it. And I hope you see things that startle you. I hope you feel things you never felt before. I hope you meet people with a different point of view. I hope you have a life you're proud of. If you find that you're not, I hope you have the strength to start all over again. So the question is, are you ready for that challenge? Are you ready maybe to start all over again by turning your will and your life over to the care of God. I want to read some words from the Old Testament that David wrote. They were in Psalm 51. And maybe echo the, these quietly in your heart, because God is here. He knows the thoughts of our hearts. Maybe we made a commitment uh, many years ago, but we would like to use this Psalm 51 as an act of recommitment now. So maybe if you can just close your eyes and give privacy to anyone who wants to just quietly meditate on these words. God, if you're real, 
I need your help. Psalm says this, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of salvation and make me willing to obey you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer tonight for the first time, or as an act of recommitment, you may want to just share what you were thinking with with your group members. And if you weren't comfortable praying that, and you want more time to think about all these things we've talked about in step three, the good news is that is fine as well. God understands our fears and reservations. He always moves at our speed. He never rushes us into something we're not happy about doing. And he is never, ever going to desert us. If it takes you the rest of your life to consider this whole question of is there a God and does he care for me, he's very happy to take your whole life. So don't feel pressured. But I can honestly say with, from thousands and thousands and thousands of people that I've met over the years and the hundreds who I've talked to who've come on these, this course over the years, the people who have put their trust in this God, in this higher power, have never, ever regretted it. So I would just encourage you with that. Anyway, it's uh, time for the small groups. Thank you.